Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles or your bulletin, grab them. We're going to look together at Mark chapter 12, a couple of verses, verses 35 to 37. I'm going to read them for us, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in together. So grab your Bibles. This is God's Word from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng, the great crowd, heard him gladly. Let's pray together. Father, we come to hear from you. And like that crowd on that day, we want to hear you and we want it to be a glad experience. So open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to believe this word, this good news for us this morning. We pray for our time in the name of Jesus. Amen. In John chapter 12, there's this famous interaction where some folks walk up to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and they say to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And these words down through the centuries have been put on plaques and put on pulpits across the world as a reminder for preachers that every time they stand up to deliver God's word, their first and primary task is to present Jesus Christ to the people. This morning, my greatest need and your greatest need is to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. Every single one of us have spent the last 167 hours since we were here a week ago out there in the world. And we know that out there, it's a dark and it's a burdensome place. And we've entered in here this morning because we know or we were told that in this place, we could find the one who promises rest for our weary souls. This morning, we need to see Jesus. We need to hear from Jesus. And in Mark chapter 12, we get this simple story where Jesus preaches himself to this crowd of people, and Mark tells us at the end in verse 37 that this crowd heard him gladly. And so here's the driving question I want us to consider this morning as we dive in together. What enables us to hear Jesus gladly? If that's ultimately our greatest need, to hear Jesus and to hear him gladly, What enables us to do that, not only this morning, but tomorrow morning, all the days of this week, and the Sundays that are on the horizon? As we do that, I want us to consider two things. I want us to consider the context for hearing Jesus gladly, and then I want us to consider the conditions for hearing Jesus gladly. So if you're a note taker, that's where we're going. Two C's, context and conditions. What enables us to hear Jesus gladly. Let's look at the context for hearing Jesus gladly. If you have your Bible and you jumped up to the last verse of the previous section in Mark chapter 12, verse 34, 
you get this interaction where Jesus has been answering all of these questions of the scribes and the religious leaders. And Mark tells us that he answers pretty well. And there at the end in verse 34, he says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Up to this point, Jesus has largely been on the defensive. What I mean by that is he's largely been receiving and responding to all of the questions that the scribes and the religious leaders have been putting to him. And we know because Mark tells us and because we can see the interactions that the motives of these scribes and these religious leaders is not actually to learn from Jesus, but we're told explicitly their intention is to trip him up to trap him in things that he says, and their ultimate goal is to destroy him. As Mark has told us, their plans have failed, and they're all out of questions. They've been silenced, and it's into this silence that Jesus begins to speak. The context for our passage is one where all of the other voices have been pushed to the side And Jesus' voice is able to take center stage. And so I'm not saying that we're not allowed to ask Jesus questions. We have good evidence in the scriptures and the Psalms, the one that Noah just read and many others from the lives of the disciples that Jesus hears and answers our questions. We see the saints down through the ages saying, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Much of Jesus' ministry was responding to the often foolish questions of his own disciples. The point that I'm making is that at some point, if we're going to hear Jesus, then our voices have to stop and we have to leave room for him to speak. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. If we're honest, we we all know this to be the case. We all have stories of how we've gotten away from all the noise and in those places we've heard Jesus. Maybe it's early in the morning at your dinner table with your Bible and a cup of coffee. Maybe it's on a spiritual retreat when your phone and your to-do lists have been put on silent. Maybe it's in this very room or in pews and chairs and other churches across the city or across the world. Whatever the context, it's often the case that when we stop speaking and leave room for Jesus to speak, that he does just that. Throughout the life of Jesus, throughout the scriptures, we see him and we see God's people pulling away from the noise, away from the mess, so that they might meet with God, so that they might hear his voice. And this is the context for hearing Jesus and hearing gladly. Solitude is one of the most ancient disciplines that the church has practiced, not because there's anything special about being alone but because when everything else stops, we leave room for God and his voice to enter in. And so that's the context for us. (laughs) When Jesus' voice gets to take center stage, it's true in this passage, and it's true in our lives as well. Now let's consider the conditions for hearing Jesus gladly, and we'll spend the rest of our time here In verse 35, Mark tells us that Jesus is teaching and preaching in the temple, and that in this particular sermon, he's preaching to the crowd from Psalm 110. 
Those words that Mark records for us, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Those are the opening words of Psalm 110. It's a Psalm of David. And as Jesus makes very clear for us, this was written by David in the Holy Spirit, meaning we can trust these words. These words are from God. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's also what's called a messianic psalm, which means that it's ultimately about and fulfilled in and through the person and the work of the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, the very one who is preaching Psalm 110 about himself to the crowd. If you were to go study Psalm 110, here's what you would find. Here's what it would show you about this Messiah, about Jesus that this Jesus is the one who will sit in the supreme place of honor and authority at the Father's right hand. Psalm 110 would introduce you to a Messiah that even David the king calls Lord, meaning that this Jesus is far superior, that this Jesus is the true and ultimate king of God's people. Psalm 110 will tell us that God the Father will put every single one of his and our enemies under the feet of this Lord, this Messiah, this Jesus. Further, Psalm 110 will introduce us to a Messiah, to a Jesus, who is an eternal priest who will reconcile us back to the Father forever. Priests were those who made sacrifice on behalf of God's people. Priests were those who ushered God's people into God's presence and ministered to them. And I share all of that because in short, Psalm 110, which Jesus is preaching about himself, tells us that Jesus is this divine priest king who rules and reigns over us and over everything in goodness and who will reconcile us forever back to the Father. Think about that. It's that message that Jesus is the good, true king, and that Jesus is the eternal priest who reconciles us to God, that he's preaching to the crowd that causes Mark to respond by saying, they heard him gladly. So Psalm 110 gives us the clues as to what the conditions are, the requirements are, if we too, upon hearing Jesus' voice, are going to say, that was good. That was a glad experience. That brought joy to us. So there's two conditions. The first condition to hear Jesus gladly is this. We must become eager for Jesus' supreme rule and reign. We must become eager for Jesus' supreme rule and reign over us and over everything. Jesus' reasoning, even as we see it here in this passage, as he unfolds Psalm 110 to the crowds, is that if David recognized that the Messiah was the Lord and was superior to him and called him Lord and gladly bowed the knee, then it would certainly be fitting for everyone else who hears to also bow the knee. If David the king bowed the knee to the Messiah, then certainly everybody else ought to bow the knee as well. What Jesus is doing is he's exposing the scribes and the Pharisees in their unwillingness to do just that. They don't want a Messiah who rules over them. They want a Messiah who does their bidding. And they don't hear him gladly because Jesus' call to authority in their lives is an affront to their own authority. 
And the same is true for us. If we're not eager for the supreme rule and reign of Jesus over our lives, his words will be an affront to our authority and to our autonomy. And so if this is the case, then it causes me to ask the question, how do we become eager? If we have to become eager for Jesus' supreme rule and reign, how do we become eager for Jesus' supreme rule and reign? Let me offer a couple of thoughts. First, we have to recognize that every other king in our life is not a good king. Whether it's myself, or my spouse, or my children, or my money, or my career, or my body, or my political party, or my team, whatever the case may be, none of these are ultimately good kings that will give me the good life, who will defeat all of my enemies, and who will usher me into peace, joy, and security. In fact, whenever I bow my knee to any of those other things, whatever they promise, in the end, I can actually expect to experience quite the opposite. No other king than Jesus has the power to accomplish our flourishing. But Jesus, the divine priest king, most certainly does. He's the one who sits in power at the Father's right hand. He's the one who rules and reigns over everything. He's the Lord of the universe. He most certainly has the power to do exactly what he promises, to rule and reign over us in goodness to give us security and peace. I want to zero in a little bit on one of the most common kings that I see in my own life and that I'm guessing uh, one of the most common kings in your own life that we too often bow our knee to, and that's the king of self. If I'm honest, in my flesh, I love me and I want to serve me way more than anybody else. And this false king of self is by far the biggest hindrance to my following Jesus, to my hearing Jesus, and certainly to hearing him gladly. And here's the thing, Jesus knows this, which is why throughout the Gospels, in his calls to discipleship, he almost always says the same thing. If you're going to follow me, then you must deny yourself. Jesus knows that the king on the throne in most of our lives most dominantly is me. And until that king is dethroned, then there's no room for Jesus. And I think one of the ways that we dethrone ourselves and leave room for Jesus is to recognize that when left to myself, I more often than not make a mess of things. When I look at my life, the majority of the issues that I face are caused by simple selfishness and self-interest over and against everybody else. And so Jen, my wife and I, we have conflict because I don't want to love her like Christ loved the church. I want her to love me. I don't want her to do the dishes and I want her to do the cleaning. I want her to wash our clothes and I want her to take care of our kids and I want my life to be comfortable and easy. We have conflict with our coworkers and our teammates because we're convinced that my way is the best way. We experience issues in our finances because we're too driven by what feels good to me in the moment rather than the larger question of how should we steward these resources that God has entrusted to us. 
We experience fallout and dysfunction in our extended families because we're too self-interested to sacrifice our time and energy to be there for them. But make no mistake, when we need them, we want them to drop everything and be there for us. And I'm really open to the fact that maybe I'm only describing my life and this is just a, a counseling session for me. But something tells me that if I were to read your mail and check your text messages, <laughs> you'd be experiencing the same things. The king of self, self promises that you can have it all as long as you're willing to steamroll and crush everyone and everything in the process. And so we've got to recognize that only Jesus is a good king and to dethrone ourselves in order that Jesus might be enthroned. And so that's one of the ways that we become eager for Jesus' rule and reign. Another is that we have to recognize how desperate we are for the power and the victory that only Jesus provides. We have to become desperate for the power and the victory that only Jesus can provide. One of the things that the Lord has been doing in my heart and in my life over the last six weeks or so is he's been making it abundantly clear how weak and how powerless I am. And it's not felt very good. I mean, if you know the story, the roller coaster that Jen and I and our family went to, uh, went through rather with the birth of Emmy a little over a month ago. If you haven't heard that story, long story short, uh, Emmy was born and there was initially some concern uh, about an issue in her digestive tract. And so the recommendation was that she needs to be transferred to Children's in Birmingham where she will likely have to go undergo a pretty invasive surgery. So talk about feeling weak and helpless sitting there with our one-day-old, preparing to hand her off to a flight crew and get taken to Birmingham where she's going to have to undergo surgery. There was absolutely nothing I could do. I was utterly powerless and weak. I was standing there looking out the window of our room at EAMC down the street, crying, praying, coming undone, begging for Jesus to do something that I knew I couldn't. And in that moment, I got a text from a dear brother at this church. And this is all it said. John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I, I can't even begin to describe in that moment the flood of emotions and joy and peace and security and confidence and supernatural things going on as in a moment of darkness and weakness the Lord himself in his words said to me, Josh, peace. Take heart. And over the next days as we were dealing with all of that, the end of the story is that God worked a miracle and she ended up being totally fine. But over the next few days as we were walking through of this, there were countless stories 
of brothers and sisters, many of whom are sitting here in this room, who reached out praying for us, who reached out sending us verses from God's word to encourage us. And I'm quite confident that apart from those things, there's no way I would be standing here in my right mind. And I share all of that to say, (laughs) I became abundantly clear how desperate I was on the Lord Jesus Christ for his power, for his victory. And when his voice came, it was a delight and it was a joy And it was a glad experience. This is one of the reasons why the scriptures instruct us to be thankful in the midst of trials, to count them all joy, because those are the things that thrust us into the places of dependence and weakness. And it's there where God says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God prunes us and brings us into these places of weakness so that we'll look to him because there his power is made perfect. There he gets a name for himself as his grace is sufficient to sustain us and to keep us. This is how we hear Jesus gladly. We become eager for his supreme rule and reign by recognizing he's the only king that can give us the good life and by recognizing how inadequate we are, how desperate we are for the power that only he provides. That's condition number one. Condition number two is this. We must become desperate for the salvation that only he offers. As we've said, Psalm 110 introduces us to a Messiah, to Jesus, as the eternal priest who reconciles us back to God. And it's a simple truth that the salvation that Jesus offers is not good news to those who trust their own works. This is one of the reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't hear Jesus gladly because he said to them, what you're doing is actually not enough. As a matter of fact, what you're doing is the problem. The Bible tells us that every single one of us are born into sin from our mother's womb. And that we enter this world hell-bent from our first breath on rebellion against God. The Bible goes on to tell us that because of our sin, we make ourselves enemies of God, objects of his wrath, with no claim to God except for his eternal judgment. And I know this isn't a popular message. I know most people don't want to hear this, but I think that's also one of the reasons why we don't hear Jesus gladly. Because we lose sight of and we forget what a massive deal our salvation is. One of the most joyous and gladdening things that Jesus says to us is that he will take our place. That he will lay down his life for us that he will pay the penalty for our sin and that on the cross all of our rebellion will be forgiven as he suffers in our place. We will not hear Jesus gladly without the constant reminder of that famous song, it was my sin that held him there on the cross. We will not hear Jesus gladly unless we hear him over and over say to us, it is finished. We will not hear him gladly unless we bathe ourselves in the constant refrain, by grace you have been saved. And so this morning, I I know that many of you have repented 
and have believed. You have come to Jesus. But if you're like me, it's so easy to forget how wonderful our salvation is. It's so easy to forget how wonderful our Savior is, how desperate we remain for his work of grace in our lives. And so let me remind you just how good your Savior is. Let me remind you by telling you how desperate you are, how dependent you remain for Jesus' work of grace in your life. Because the more you remember, the more you will gladly hear him when his voice comes I know as well that there are likely some of us in here this morning who have never trusted Jesus. You've never bowed the knee. You've never heard him gladly. Let me encourage you with this. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to bow the knee and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus is bidding you to come to him as the good king and as the one who saves you from your sins and ushers you into relationship with your God and your Father. Jesus is saying to you, I'm the one who holds your life in your hands. I got this. Jesus is the one that promises at the end of our days he'll take us home to the Father's house. You simply have to come and to bow at his feet. And so the question for you this morning is will you for the first time hear him gladly. We have the privilege to be those to whom the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking this morning and is the good king who rules over us and is the eternal priest who saves us from our sin. He is speaking to us words of life and salvation. And as we quiet our hearts and minds, as we dethrone all of the other kings in our life, as we become eager for his power, as we become desperate for the salvation that he offers, we too, like this crowd that we read about here and like countless other crowds down through the ages, can say that we have heard him gladly as he says to us again this morning, come to me, all who are weary and burdened with many things, and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your patience and your grace. Thank you for your salvation. We pray that we would hear you gladly. And that even as we sing this next song, that you would fill our hearts with joy and life at the salvation that you have offered us. And I pray that there wouldn't be a person in this room that doesn't walk out of here knowing that they've met with you and that their testimony today and all the days of this week isn't that we heard him gladly. Oh Lord, we love you. More than that, our hope and our trust is that you love us. We love you, Lord, and we commit the rest of this day and this week to you, and we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.